This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We do. We're so reactive that we all of a sudden will make a rule that is is useless. <laughs> we're just going to we're going to just start making rules about whistles for example. Have you heard about this school that has banned playtime whistles as they are too aggressive? You know, for the for decades, the end of a recess has been marked by a sharp whistle blown by whichever, you know, teacher was out on recess duty. And uh, before anyone had ever thought about it, you know, we used to blow whistles and kids would just pay attention to the whistle and it worked, right? But St. Monica's Catholic Primary School in England has done away with whistles. They're worried that the sound of the whistle might be too aggressive. (laughs) Or annoying. I feel aggressed. Yeah. Uh, Children now have to watch out for the teachers putting their hand up. So now... They just are constantly watching their teacher, and when she puts her hand up, that means, you know, time to come in. So what we wanted to do as a show is we wanted to put together some other sounds and and just test them out on the playground with a bunch of kids. So we have a live video feed of a playground with kids. Uh, This is Dilworth Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah. Look at the kids having so much fun. Let's just test a bunch of different uh, sounds and see if any of these sounds get the kids' attention, like the whistle did, okay? Uh, What's the first sound, Ben? Okay, so an air raid sound. Nope, looks like the kids are still playing. Yeah, no. See, back in the 50s and 60s, that sound right there would have you duck and cover, but not not today. What's another sound here? Mm, Mario Brothers. Oh, they're still playing. Yeah, the kids didn't even hear that one. In my day, that would have shut everyone up, right? Uh, what other sounds we got? Yeah, no, see, that would get me every time. The old yeah, hot pocket I, I was sound. pretty confident with that one. That was, ah, nothing. Uh, any other sounds? Foghorn, which... Less you know, aggressive, but right. not very but effective. But if you're, if you're a seaman, you know that sound, and you know... You come in. Yeah, time yeah. to watch out for the shore. Any other sounds? That one. Yeah, that one worked. Wow. A little message from their iPhone. Wow. See how they just shut right up. I, I don't even know if they're still out there, but they, they're quiet. They went reverend. I think they're all che- oh, they're, actually they're all checking their phones. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So all we got to do, if you really want to control your kids, is just send them a message. So coordinate all of the parents to send messages. Right, that's what they need. Is just a mass email sent to everyone on the playground, and come they'll all come in. right in. You don't even need to raise your hand if you're the the nun or the sister that's running the the primary school there. Don't raise your hand. Don't blow a whistle. Air Raid doesn't work. Mario Brothers Fog, Corn, none of that works. By the way, um, we should have done this before, but if anybody was aggressed by any of those sounds. Oh, that's true. Um, if, they felt, if they felt attacked, if they felt uh, that, it was, um, if, that it was offensive, then, then we should have given you a trigger alert to yes. warn everybody that we were going to be talking about something like a whistle 
that is maybe too aggressive for them. Mm. Okay. Next time, Ben, make sure we always do a little a trigger alert. Okay. Good stuff, folks. Hey, we're here to help. We can't do everything, but we can find solutions to the schoolyard whistle. And we now know what it is. It's a very simple, you've got mail reply. You know, once you hear that, everybody loses focus. And come on in, everybody. Oh, I thought I had a real message. It's almost like the equivalent of tasing somebody, yeah, except no. without the electricity. Right. It's a it's a non-electrical tase. Mm-hmm. It's a tase of the mind. Just as stimulating. We'll take a break, folks. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger. And uh, let's do it without so much aggression. Lose the whistles. Thank you, Coach. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There really are a lot of tensions, stresses that you feel, don't you, in your relationship. And and some don't. They're just so happy and content not knowing how stressed their family is. But um, I don't know. I think there comes a point for all of us where we need to to, – to take our relationship and and like we were just hearing from Sheila Ray Gregoire and become more intentional in it and, and literally say, I'm going to grow this thing. I've had a really weird um, issue going on in my yard where I, I have a love-hate relationship with my yard, my with my weeds, with my beds, my everything. And interestingly, the the yard starts to resemble – my negative belief system. I don't, I don't like my yard. I don't like it. And it doesn't look good. So it's now retaliating. Except for here's the deal. This year, my wife somehow has been able to get me more involved in the yard, like the, in the weeding, and get me to become more a part of it. And I've noticed that as I've changed my view about it, that it's not just something to hate. It's probably my yard is something to work with, to understand, and in certain places control, um, then it makes my life a little bit easier. So as I get my boys up, uh, or my wife helps us all get up to go out and weed, after doing that for a month, once or twice a week, you start to really make your yard look good. And you, you, you start making a dent in the things that you didn't like. And it's just a shift sometimes, a shift in your paradigm, a shift in your view about what you really, what you can do, what you should do, and what's what's working. And I just look at it like the same is true in our marriages. If at some point, instead of just sitting back and assuming that the yard's going to take us over and eventually destroy us, if I would just shift my view in my marriage, that my marriage isn't here to destroy me. My marriage is here to be an additive part of my life, to teach me certain lessons, to give me some activities to do as well, but to build something with someone else. I can't control it. It's not all up to me. It's just it's just an opportunity to become better, to be better, and to um, to be a little bit different. So Maybe if we see our marriage as, as something that we can work on, something that we can improve, wow, all of a sudden you might grow something you can be proud of. 
Heaven forbid, you might even start living some principles that you can share with others. So one of the rules that I would, or uh, principles that I would try to live by, and a thought that I would try to blow up if I could, is that lasting love shouldn't be this difficult. I'm a big believer that if, just like my yard, if I want my yard to look good, it shouldn't just be easy. It's difficult. Anything that's natural, like a relationship, they're difficult. They're, it's hard to keep up. And if you let it go too far and let it grow too, you know, uh, too um, wild, then all of a sudden you'll pay for it. And if you want to have a chance to have a better approach to anything that's living, you got to understand why it is what why it's doing what it's doing. We need to spend more time trying to understand why our spouses are the way they are. Um, I, I always think of the the metaphor of um, there's so much pressure, there's so much intensity that can go on in a marriage from you know the raising of children and the mistakes that can be made and the communication errors that happen and the misunderstanding, but the goodness and the closeness and the richness and the love and the forgiveness, all of that together creates a pretty intense experience. And it's almost like we think that, you know, that pressure is is not good, but really that pressure creates the gems of our life and of our world. Um, diamonds are created under that pressure. Our, our fine gems are created under such pressure. But it seems like many of us aren't trying to create that gem in our marriage by handling the pressure and managing it. It's almost more like we're just looking for gems. We want to go find the perfect marriage partner and marry that person, just like picking up a diamond off the ground and just not even realizing what it took to make the diamond. I think our responsibility here is with each other is to learn how to make beautiful gems and to turn a marriage that's full of pressure and perfect idyllic opportunities to create something beautiful. And then we ought to create those beautiful things. Uh, one of my favorite um, just authors is Neil Maxwell. And he said um, that this world is like a laboratory and the people in our lives are the clinical material. Our relationships are the clinical material. So one thought I feel that uh, I need to work on, I'm sure you might feel it as well, is that lasting love shouldn't be difficult. It's It shouldn't, I mean, it, it should be difficult. Get used to that idea. It's not here to just be easy for you. It's not here to always be perfect. You need the imperfect times to make the gem. Um, another idea we need to blow up is that I know who my partner really is. And I hate to be, uh, you know, the negative Nelly here, but you have no clue who you're married to. Uh, and by the way, neither do they. They don't even know who they are. Most of us aren't really good at identifying what we are and who we are and why we do what we're doing. Really, we're changing constantly. And every day, every new interaction, every new experience changes me. So you can be as frustrated as you want for why your partner does what they're doing. But before you try to just assume you knew them and now they've changed, why don't you go figure out why they're changing? Go figure out what is the draw for why they're you know, moving away from being as religious as they used to be? Or why are they um, struggling so much, you know, at work and want to change their job so quickly? Don't just assume you wanted to be a lawyer since I first met you. Well, okay, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Go figure out why. Don't just argue that they should stay the same. Because the reality is we're here on earth to progress, aren't we? 
So if I feel a need to change, you, you probably are going to have to help understand who I am and, and not just not only just freak out about it. Um, pretty important thing. I, and why I say that is I thought I knew who I was until we had a my daughter had a grandchild uh, for me. She didn't have it for anyone else but me. Um, but it changed me. Honestly, my life changed the minute I became a grandfather because I thought I loved my kids, which I totally do. But I had a whole different purpose as a grandpa. And it changed everything I thought. My my thinking became much more long term. I got to be there to raise this girl and to be a part of her life. And I got to create more time in my schedule. All these things needed to change because of this one stage I'm going through. We all are going through these stages. So we're learning one way or another. We're learning. That's the goal of the show is to give you the tools you need when you need them so that you can live healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Tonight's the night, the launch of the 2016 Rio Summer Olympic Games. They've uh, already been having some competitions, and everything's underway tonight. The opening ceremonies, get ready for it. Rio, though, is facing some very difficult challenges with the threat of the Zika virus, civil unrest, political turmoil, and construction cost overruns. Our guest today, Paul Christensen, is a professor of the Department of Classics at Dartmouth College. He has spent two decades studying and writing about the ancient and modern Olympics, Dr. Christensen uh, feels that the games have become too big and some ideas and uh, has put together some ideas on how to adjust the games so they can be better managed by all the other countries in the world. Dr. Christensen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. This um, We've had the Olympics in my hometown before in Salt Lake City. Incredible experience. Major, major stress, though, to, to make <laughs> yes. sure that you make it financially. You guys had some complications in 2000. Oh, do you remember that? And it, I mean, the, the whole scandal about uh, bribery and all of the Olympic junk, except it, after that, that, that was the, I guess, getting of the games. But then it, it was amazing how it brought a community together. It brought the talent and, and, and a lot of talented people together. That was like right when security was becoming paramount. Mm. So talk to us. Um, it's. I think I read in your article, uh, you wrote an article in theconversation.com, Making the Case for the New Olympics. This Olympics uh, down in Rio is, I guess, expected to cost about $20 billion? Yes. That's crazy. That's the, that's the likely sum. The, the numbers have gotten very large. I think when people talk about the Olympics, uh, there's a lot of positives. And I think you yeah. started by pointing out some of the positives that Salt Lake City experienced. So I don't think... Anyone has completely negative things to say, but there are, are a lot of complications. Uh, I think the things that are most regularly cited as big issues are costs, which have obviously gone up a huge amount in the course of the last 20 years, and corruption and sustainability have been the big things that people have talked hmm. about regularly as becoming issues that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, which runs the Games, is probably going to need to confront at some point. Cost, corruption, and sustainability? 
Sustainability. So one of the issues as people become more aware environmentally is that the IOC estimates that sort of at a bare minimum, the Summer Olympics would require buildings that occupy about 1,700 acres, but most places build considerably more than that. So Beijing, the buildings for the for the Summer Olympics occupied about 8,000 acres. Holy and that's cow. a lot of building to take place in the course of five or six years. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to sort of do it in a rough and ready fashion, which is to put up a lot of stuff really quickly without worrying too much about the environmental impact. And I guess that is, if you only need 1,700 acres and you push 8,000 acres and build it on 8,000, I guess that is that just so more people can attend? They're bigger venues. And so a lot of host cities want to reinforce their bid and the probability of it being accepted by doing more than the minimum. But another part of the equation is that as time has gone on, especially in the last few bidding cycles, there has been a real tendency for places to bid that have a desire to show themselves off in a sort of grand display of Mm. nationalism, which then requires huge buildings to support that display. So... And in a way, we get further and further away from the the spirit of the Olympics. Ah, yes. This is a, a big deal, which I think people don't talk about enough. The Olympics were founded back in the – the IOC was founded in 1894, not to run games per se, but as a peace movement. Uh, this came out of the time in Paris in the late 19th century when there was a real emphasis on trying to find ways for countries to get along. And the sort of guiding light behind the IOC was a guy named Pierre de Coubertin. He was very involved in peace movements, and his idea was that if we had big international sporting events, what would happen is that we would bring together people from all over the world, and there would be an emphasis on inclusion and settling things peacefully and fair play and that this would help promote world peace. And the people who run the IOC take this very seriously. They call it Olympism, and they see themselves as having a mission to make the world a better place through sport. Well, And it works, except then these countries go broke. It can definitely work, and I think Salt Lake City is a great example of how how that can work in practice. The problem is, as the costs have gone up, the the number of places that are willing to foot that kind of bill are very few. There's a study done by the Dutch government in 2012 that predicted, with some uh, with a great degree of foresight, that the only places that would bid to host the games going forward would be non-democratic countries. Uh, because they would have the strong desires for nationalistic displays uh, and the ability to overcome local opposition. Oh, wow. Oh, so they could oppress, and they needed press. Yeah, exactly. Right on. And that's a really great formulation, and that's, in <laughs> fact, what happened. If you, the, the great example most recently has been the bidding for the 2022 uh, Winter Games, and there was a whole series of cities that thought about it, but Oslo and Norway withdrew because there was no public support. Uh, Stockholm withdrew for the same reason. Davos and Switzerland withdrew from the bidding. Uh, Krakow withdrew after a negative local referendum. And the only two cities left in the bidding were Almaty and Kazakhstan and Beijing. Holy cow. Wow. And neither one of those have the sort of... Uh, 
political system or the neither one of those countries have the sort of political system or human rights record that right. really are consonant with what Olympism is supposed to be. So about. it's yeah, so it's it's become the games that can only be afforded by those that don't necessarily further Olympism. Exactly. The the peace the peaceful movement side of of sharing a world together in sport. Wow. Is as you study it, um, there's the financial impact, as you were saying, the cost, the corruption has become pretty big. We saw that with the in the Salt Lake uh, kind of corruption scandal, but we also saw it in the soccer FIFA kind of mm-hmm. world scandal as well. And mm-hmm. we, we've had some discussions on the show about that. There tends to be a need to for you know not bribing, I guess, but. Showing your goods and showing everything we can do and giving even gifts and presents to the IOC. Is that all gone away since since uh, Salt Lake City? Well, it's gotten better. The IOC has taken some very serious steps to try to curb that sort of behavior, in large part by forbidding people on the IOC who are going to make the decision about what city will host the Olympics. It forbids them from visiting those cities. And that was a real problem in Salt Lake City. That yeah. Salt Lake City made a real effort to fly all the people in who were going to make the decision. And while they were in Salt Lake City, they got treated to pretty much everything that could be possibly mm-hmm. imagined, including free medical treatment. Oh wow! For themselves and their families. Yeah. Well, now, and in fact, I remember that. Um, in there, a lot of the Salt Lake City committee were burned, I think, because it went to Nagano four years before. Mm-hmm. I think it was Nagano, and Nagano exactly. didn't even have a, bill, uh, a mountain large enough, I guess, to to actually host the one of the ski run, the one of the ski competitions. So they had to yeah, build but, one. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And Nagano, the people who ran the bid for Nagano were almost unapologetic about the amount of bribery they did. So, for instance, a bunch of Nagano businessmen paid for it to build an Olympic museum in Los Angeles near the IOC headquarters. Wow. Wow. That was purely coincidental. Yeah. And when questions began to be asked, all the records from Nagano were burnt by their organizing committee. <laughs> Accidentally, I'm sure. <laughs> and the organizers were asked why they burnt all the records. And, he, and the organizers said, the head organizer said that the records might have been embarrassing to the IOC. Oh, how nice of them. They, now, some of this has gone away, but interestingly enough, Tokyo, which is, which is going to be the next host for the Summer Games, it's undergoing its own scandal, evidently, that the bid committee for Tokyo spread some money around to some of the IOC decision mm. makers. And so it, it's gotten better, but it's when there are such huge sums of money floating around it's ve- and very short spaces of time in systems that are, are not regularly functioning. In other words, it's not a regular government institution where you could put administrative procedures into place that function over decades. Right. In those sort of circumstances, it's really hard to keep people uh, from misbehaving, at least on the edges. And you're also blending and merging multiple cultures. I mean, right? It seems like certain certain cultures uh, they just play diff- by different rules, and it doesn't. I mean, on the IOC level, they can't do that. But um, it it seems like it's still almost it was culturally more acceptable, even when I lived abroad, to to pay 
to not get a ticket instead of getting a ticket and going to pay. Anyway, it sounds weird. But um, uh, it's very a lot. I mean, this is we don't, not something we want, need to talk about today. But the other issue of corruption is the spending of the money at in the host city. No, if I get to that, because that doesn't that then lead to your sustainability issue, where we yes. build these huge things that we can't sustain over time. There, the. Costs go in all sorts of different directions. One, just to tidy up on the corruption end of things. You know, the Sochi Olympics evidently cost about $50 billion. No one really knows. Wow. It's an extraordinary sum of money. Just for comparison, Salt Lake City probably cost about $3 billion. Mm. But well, one of the big issues with Sochi is that a lot of the money just disappeared. You know, either it was spent on construction projects that were never completed or weren't completed very well, or, and some of the money evidently just vaporized. <laughs> and again, this goes back to this issue of spending a lot of money in a short space of time in a fashion which is the host city is not really prepared to do, that there are huge opportunities for lots of money to vanish. Yeah. And that's, and that, you know, understandably, people in those sorts of countries take that kind of thing seriously, right? And, and any country, which is here's a lot of money, a lot of it's taxpayer funded. And what's going on is. The money's disappearing, and that's really not what I think anyone had in mind for this kind of thing. That's right, and so and then the shoddy work, and we're hearing in Rio um, that the, some of the shoddy work is actually creating environmental issues and other impact issues. There, that's almost inevitable because again, we're doing we're asking cities to do an enormous amount of building in a very short period of time, and even if things go well, so you know Brazil. A couple of years before this, I hosted the FIFA World Cup and I worked on a huge number of stadiums for those for that game, for those games. And some of those uh, stadiums were quite well built. The question is, what do you do with them afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you can only hold so many sporting events. Yeah, so Brazil thought they were going to use all these soccer stadiums later on. But so, for instance, one of them they spent $400 million on is... Mm being used by a second division soccer team that seats 1,500 people for their games. So they didn't need a $400 million stadium no. to play for this team. See, that's what we will have to take a break, Paul, come back. I want you to tell us what are some of your solutions. I think they're in, the ideas you're, you're pushing forward are innovative. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, you'll get major pushback. But I think the reality is we don't need to keep, you know, doing it the way we're doing it, uh, or we're going to keep getting the chaos we're getting. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Christensen. He is uh, talking to us about the Olympics. He's a professor of depart- in the Department of Classics at Dartmouth College and has spent two decades studying and writing about the ancient and modern Olympics. Stick with us, folks. We're going to come back with some solutions, some proposals from Dr. Christensen on what we could be doing with the Olympics. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. The music, by the way, uh, part of the theme music to the Rio Olympics. That, we didn't even talk about that. Another expense. You've got to get the right music. Joining us is Dr. Paul Christensen, and he is a professor in the Department of Classics at Dartmouth College. He spent the last two decades studying and writing about ancient and modern Olympics. He um, he also uh, has an expert an expertise in ancient Greek history. 
with a particular focus on Sparta. That's what we need, Dr. Christensen. We need the Spartans back for a minute to help sort through some of our issues here. They, uh, they did have a well-deserved reputation for doing things in very simple fashion. <laughs> yeah, I bet they've got a lot of other history we don't know about, too, that you could eventually enlighten us on. What do we do going forward? The Olympics, they're beautiful. They have an incredible spirit and opportunity, a really powerful way to create peace, as they were kind of designed to do. Um, but they're in chaos with cost issues, corruption issues, sustainability issues that you've taught us about. How, what, what do you propose going forward? How could we mix it up and, and still get the same spirit, the same opportunity, but, you know, spread out the risk maybe? Sure. So the one thing, the starting point was to think about where the costs are coming from for running the Olympics. And they're generally divided into three buckets, the operating budget, which is what it actually costs to administer the games. But in addition to that, there's the two things. There one are is to build venues, and the other is infrastructure. And that's where most of the expense comes from, to build all the venues, all the stadiums and swimming pools and canoe, uh, canoe courses that one needs for the Olympics, and then all the infrastructure to move around six or 700,000 people in addition to the regular population of the city. And so the piece that I wrote for the conversation is advocating a very different model for the Olympics in which each individual sport went to a different city hmm. so that instead of having all 30 or so summer Olympic sports held in Rio de Janeiro, for example, there would be 30 different host cities, each one each one uh, organizing and administering just a single event. Yeah, and they, a lot of those cities wouldn't have to build, right? They'd just have to clean up their site. One presumes that the for the cities in this sort of system that would bid, would bid because they already had most, if not all, of the appropriate infrastructure in place. And so that the venues were there, and there would be very, very many fewer people in each given city so that the venue would be in place already, it would need very little work, and the infrastructure would need to be entirely rebuilt. So the cost would drop radically mm. for hosting for the host city. That There has been a lot of talk um, recently, too, I've heard about, you even mentioned Stockholm and others that were maybe thinking of, of going back and looking for other a second chance to host the Olympics because they've already got they've already got it. They've already got the, the system set up and the and the venues they need is so one proposal is yours where you spread it out over uh I guess the thirty venues or the thirty different sites or couldn't we just go back to the same old cities and have every country basically create two or three Olympic venues sites that just rotate through? That's a possibility. You know, when the first Olympic Games were held in 1896, the first ones run by the IOC, they were held in Athens, and the Greeks at that point had put a lot of effort into building the appropriate facilities, and they really thought that they were going to get to keep the Olympics permanently. Mm. But the IOC decided to move the Games, the idea being that it's supposed to be a global event. It's supposed to sure. be an event which involves everyone in the whole world and sort of pulls us together as a as a species so that we all learn to get along and they were very reluctant to give a permanent home to the games because they thought that was antithetical to their yeah. idea of trying to bring everyone together so i i'm not sure that given the goals of olympism that building two or three permanent venues permanent settings for them is really what they have in hmm. mind they really do want to try to make it a global event 
in that sense, very different than, for instance, FIFA, which is held from the limited number of countries in a single country. Right. And the, I guess you could do it by continent, you know, two or three per continent, rotate through the continents, or isn't technology, you mentioned that earlier, can't we use technology better? Like your example, if you spread it out over 30 different venues, use the technology to create the unity. Absolutely. So this is one of the points that I was arguing in the piece is that when the Olympic Games were founded in the late 19th century, in order to participate in any sense as a spectator or an athlete, you needed to be in the site. There was no anything resembling the media that we have today. But given that almost everyone who's going to have something to do with the modern Olympics is going to do it electronically, either on the internet or via television, there's not a real, there's no real compelling reason that everyone who's who's competing needs to be in the same city anymore. Right. And in fact, one of the things which is true of sports coverage around the world is that it's much more exciting to watch it live than on tape. Mm-hmm. And when we put a all the games in a single time zone, it means that big chunks of the world are going to have to get the games either very at very strange hours for them live, or on tape delay. Whereas if we put the games all over the globe, so that they were all happening, so they were happening a sort of a rolling basis across the globe, there would always be live coverage wherever that you were, wherever country you were in, there'd always be live coverage going on. It's if you've ever seen like NFL's Sunday show, they have whatever 16 games going on or 12, 13, 14 games going on every week and one live hosting site. But I mean, yeah, it's it'd be more complicated than that. Um, I, I guess, too, it's somebody's got to have the technology and there's a lot of money being made on these things. So that's probably underlying a lot of this. Right. There's media rights. There's. There's billions of dollars being paid by large organizations to to be promoted. The television revenues have shot up enormously. And the next phase, and the IOC is already preparing for this, is to broadcast almost everything digitally on the Internet so that the big signature sports like track and field would be broadcast over the regular television networks. But less popular sports like canoeing would be broadcast on the internet and people could get at them any way they wanted. And the IOC is working on setting its sort of own television system up to broadcast everything. Mm. And that's that's a big jump forward because there are enough people around the world who want to watch the canoeing competition who are not going to be able to do that. You bet. And and it seems like, too, you could... You know, it's it's almost like we get the spirit of Olympi- Olympism in the very – in the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies and then throughout the stories made up by the journalists that we watch. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, but it almost seems like – I don't know. Maybe the Olympic – the IOC needs to create something like a network where they can control Olympism messaging throughout the entire thing. I think that's what they, they clearly have that in mind. And I, just to go back to the idea of dispersing the Olympics among all these different cities, it would help create some really interesting stories that really would, would help achieve the goals of Olympism, which mm. is, for instance, lots of cities in the world and lots of countries simply don't have the economic resources to host the Olympics in their current form. Right. 
But there is lots of cities in the world that could host a single event very easily. Yeah, that have a river and, that you can put canoes they have in. Have a river, you know, and they could afford thirty million dollars yep. to put up uh, a single and a, a venue for a single state for a single event. And the security costs are much lower. They can be handled by the local law enforcement mm. officers because they're not expecting two hundred thousand people. They're expecting thirty thousand people, like a fairly standard sporting event, which they're prepared to handle. And so we would get a really global event in the sense that we would have all these cities hosting events, and then the stories that covered them would give us a real sense of what's going on around the globe oh, that would at be the beautiful. same time in the course of those two weeks. And so the IOC could tell a much more global story yeah. that was about people coming together to do something that they all love at the same time. Yeah, imagine 30 really countries good. represented in one Olympic event. I mean, 30 different venues in 30 different countries. How powerful mm -hmm. is that? That would be, I think it would be great for Olympism. It would be good for everyone. And part of what a part of you know, the idea for this plan is dispersing people is to hope that the Olympic athletes would have the opportunity to spend some time in their host city, both either before or after the games, interacting with the local population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the Rio de Janeiro can't afford to have all the Olympic athletes and all the coaches there for long periods of time. There's just too many of right. them. But if it was just a single event, there's no reason why the athletes couldn't come a week early and stay a week late and interact and play some local friendly matches with the clubs, teach the sports to the kids, the local local children to go to the schools. Mm. And so there would be a much more sort of interactive experience that would be the sort of Olympism that the IOC wants to have. D to me, it's got the right spirit, Paul. Is it is it going anywhere? Well, interestingly, so we have a relatively new IOC president named Thomas Bach. And Bach took over just at the time when the number of cities bidding to host the Olympics went down. And th that very – it used to be a very competitive process. But every bidding cycle, the number of cities try who want to bid for the Olympics has gone down. And Bach understood this to be a real problem. He spent a lot of time traveling the globe trying to encourage cities to bid. But the other thing that he instituted was a sort of period of reflection for the IOC to think about what they were doing and how they might do it better. And so that they came up with was a series of reforms that they called Agenda 2020. It was put in place last year. And the idea was to try to make the Olympics more sustainable and cheaper to host. One of the proposals that went through and uh, that they accepted as part of that set of reforms was that a country could bid so that um, not it wouldn't be just a single city, but for instance, Germany would bid as a country. Uh. There would be a central city that hosted some of the events, but then they could be dispersed among other cities in the same country. It, I, my understanding is that there was a hope that Hamburg in Germany would do that and sort of lead the bid for Germany, but people in Hamburg decided they didn't want to have anything to do with the Olympics. Oh. So it actually didn't work out. Come on, that would have been a great test. Um, I think the issue there, again, is that the people in Hamburg were willing were con concerned that they were going to get stuck with the cost. Sure, sure. And all the issues that went with that. So the IOC has made some preliminary steps in this direction. They've certainly indicated an awareness that there's a problem and a willingness to do something about it. Now, what this, this proposal is a more radical one. I think um, I should say that it, I go fairly regularly to the International Olympic Academy, which is located in Greece. It's a sort of study center for the Olympics. 
Yeah. And this proposal has been was floating around the the Olympic Academy and was forwarded as part of the proposals for Agenda 2020 and mm. not accepted. But I don't think anyone anyone at the Olympic Academy, including myself, thought the IOC was going to adopt the more radical right. dispersion right away. But because it's a big institution, it's got more than a century of history, and it's going to take some time for them to evolve. But yeah. they, they think they're, they're aware of the issues and certainly have shown some willingness to do something about them. Well, I mean, that's, so, I guess, I part of the, that's part of the battle, right, Paul, is in the end, I guess, you just slowly kind of, nick away, hit away at it, and, and I guess try to get more and more ideas um, out there. The, the spirit of, of Olympism, is, it's a great learning for all of us, especially tonight as we watch the opening um, ceremonies. Dr. Paul Christensen, we appreciate you and your great insight from Dartmouth College. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and wrap it up this first hour of the show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, tonight with the Olympic uh, uh, opening ceremonies starting, pay attention to what we just learned about uh, from our our good Professor Christensen about Olympism and that Olympic spirit. Do you, when you're watching tonight, do you feel a sense of a promotion of world peace? Do you see them kind of exalting the idea of living a whole life, a balanced life of body, will, and mind? Because it, a lot of times you're going to get caught up in the showmanship. You're going to, who's carrying the flag? And, you know, all the stars that you're going to see. But remember, too, behind the scenes, Rio de Janeiro has been, as a country, I mean, as a city and as, as an entire country of Brazil, They've got a lot of their heart in this, and there's going to be bad press uh, and Zika, for heaven's sakes, but also just be grateful for the work that they've put in and the really the expense they've gone to tonight um, and throughout the next few weeks. So if we appreciate what we see at home, talk to your kids about it. Share it. Talk about the some of the Olympic principles and maybe try to catch the spirit of the Olympics and the peace movement of the Olympics, not just the joy of competition. Make sense? Okay, we'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. Stick with us, helping you live longer and seeing the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. For some of you out there that uh, that really like being the pessimist, you might be sitting here thinking, this is just all too positive. I can't stand this guy. The reality of um, what what we're finding is, and remember, for years when we were studying psychology, we would study it through kind of a lens of abnormal psychology. We would only study people that had major, you know, abnormal issues or um, it, you know things that they were dealing with. We would we would talk and focus about those that would hear things, those that would you know couldn't 
couldn't keep a job, those that were constantly having problems. But what they found out is um, when you're studying psychology, it's just as important to study not just the broken side of life, but the success side of life. What, what actually is producing results for other people? That form of study is called positive psychology. People that feel really positive in life do things differently than those that feel really negative in life. We think positivity is the norm, a lot of people would think, right? So historically, we would study the negative people, and we've got for years, you know, decades, a lot of information and theoretical approaches for how to deal with the abnormal, the negative side of, of people's lives. However, people that are really have a lot of energy and excitement and joie de vivre for life, right? Um, those people do something different than those that don't have the energy, that don't have optimism, that don't have flow, don't feel like they're living in a kind of an optimal life. That's all that our last guest, Michelle Gielen, was talking about. And I've seen it change couples, for example, incredibly. When a couple comes in and talks to me, they can talk on two sides of an issue. It's the same issue, right? So if the issue is about money, which tends to be the number one thing couples say they can't talk about, you can come in and we can then spend the next hour focusing on the fact that we don't have money. And he spends the money and he buys video games and we don't even have time and money for it. And he should be working. And we talk about everything that doesn't work with the video game. Um, And that's where a lot of times the conversation goes. And we go there because we think we're going to solve the problem. That will solve it. By talking about what's broken, we will solve it. The downside to that part of the conversation, though, is it burns us out. And then all of a sudden nobody has any more energy to deal with any more talk about money. And one way to blow that up is just then he might fight back and say, are you kidding me? Who bought a $400 purse? My video games only cost five, 50 bucks. I can buy eight video games for your purse. It's not a purse. It's a bag. And now we're fighting about purses and bags and video games. It's all on not just the negative side, but it's on the problem side is what I might call it. However, that's not what they want. What they want is the peace of financial stability. What they want is to know this person wants to know that they're safe financially. They want to know that they can talk about it and they're on the same page. So what I found is a lot of times you can cut through hours of fighting, hours of smoke, I call it, hours of starvation, if you would just start to listen for what they really want. When the wife brings up financial problems, what she really wants is financial peace. If she would bring financial peace as a discussion and we talk about how we can create more financial peace and safety and security and a savings account, then we can start getting into the solutions. Instead, because we're so hurt and afraid and and we are scared, we start from the negative side and then we have to dig ourselves out of the negative hole. Does that make sense? It's called – it's the appreciative approach. It's – It's not being positive. It's actually just talking about what you want instead of what you don't want. 
If you keep talking about what you don't want, you reinforce what you don't want, and amazingly, it appears. It self-fulfills. But if what you want is financial stability, if what you want is that we're on the same page, if what you want is that I want to see that we're both productively working together to get our money and and we're saving it, Um, I want that we have similar values financially, have those conversations. Well, yeah, it's easy for you, but you're not married to my wife who spends like crazy. Here we go. Make sense? It's not just a bunch of positivity, I promise. It's a bunch of productivity. It's more productive to discuss real-life solutions on the, on the positive side. It works, and it does a body good. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, I'm convinced that dating's it, it's different. It's not what it used to be, and that's why I think as uh, the older generation, we always look back and we're like, ah, you kids just aren't doing it quite right. But we, with technology and the advancement of technology, the advancement and uh, equalization of women in the in life and in the workplace, and we say they're equal, except again, if it's still if they're still ending earning sixty cents on the dollar, or less, um, or I mean, sorry, forty cents on the dollar or thirty cents on the dollar to a man, then you know the idea of asking a lot of guys out isn't financially <laughs> responsible. So. We we need to blow up some of these paradigms. And I guess it's one thing if you want to. You could just sit there and be mad uh, and and wish that the world would change so this would all fly straight for you. Or you, you can adjust. Um, one of my big beliefs when I talk uh, to singles groups and singles organizations, certain people just kind of swim into a pool. I call it just a pool, a pool of single candidates, right? Um, and they just swim in and they, they just, they're, they, they're good at finding what they want and they, they're good at and socially skilled enough to make it happen. And then they swim out of the pool with their future partner and then they'll go date. And if it doesn't work, they'll go back to the pool. But some people spend so much time in the pool that we actually forget what our goal is, right? And we, we start commiserating with the pool. We start hanging out with the pool. We start making plans with the entire pool. And our belief is that we're more likely to find a, a partner if we are in the pool. But the downside to being in the pool is uh, some people are intimidated by pools of swimming singles. It's scary. I can't tell you, and I don't get it. I think men are losing confidence. And women are gaining confidence, but also won't take the initiative to go start, in, you know, initiating the dates and making them happen. And again, more and more, I'm I'm working with the guy that just doesn't dare do it, and I, he goes up to a single and feels dismissed or not not safe. I don't know how you fix that. And so I think what people do is they fall back on something that's a lot safer for them which is an app, and and then all of a sudden they might join into kind of more of a hookup culture where I'm not – I don't want to date you, but let's – yeah, we could go meet and maybe kiss, make out. But don't don't make me – don't make me relate to you. Don't make me find out about your family. I don't want to meet your dad. And so we got to be careful. If you were, if you were in that hookup culture – you're going to be hurt, right? And you're not necessarily learning how to create a more intimate, deep relationship. 
Um, the rules are changing a bit, and we got to be willing to change with them if we want to be in the game. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. How powerful is it to be able to look at your own thinking and uh, your own language? How many times have you sat there and had somebody selling you something and you thought, wow, I do need this magical berry to, to change my life? You You weren't even thinking about you know, buying a timeshare. It wasn't even on your mind. Yeah, that happened to me one time when this guy sold me some beans. He said yeah. they were magic. Yeah. But they never grew. Right. Yeah. And that's when you made bean salad. Three no. bean salad, five bean salad. No, they were rotten by the time I dug them back up. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, a sucker's born every day. Did you learn anything in our last segment? Um, I, I was kind of sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe listen up to this segment because maybe we can still teach you something. It's such a it's such a battle we all fight where we want to belong. We want to, you know, we appreciate the neighbor sharing what they are sharing with us because, you know, we don't want to be left out. Except sometimes we do. Do you have the ability to see through what others are doing? Do you have that insight? You don't. I think like uh, the good Dr. Sherman was saying earlier, we, we are all going to be a little naive. It's it's part of humanity. But you don't have to be a whole lot naive. And if you've been kicked in the head before, you don't have to offer your head for more kicking. We can start to notice the trends, notice the, the words, notice the, the content that people are sending us. And even as you listen to the political rhetoric – can can you find an exception to what Donald Trump is saying or to what Hillary Clinton is saying? Is there an exception to this? Um, can, can your opposition, for example, use the idea that they could build walls to keep Americans out? Yeah. If your opposition could use the exact same fact or point – then you're probably starting to just jump on the rhetoric bandwagon. I get it. It's exciting. It's powerful. It's it's what you want to you want to you know be a part of a movement. You want to be a part of change. But just because it's stated strongly and factually doesn't mean it's actually factual. You can believe something. You know, very strongly. Think about it. When was the last time you actually totally believed something and then found out it not to be true? And it's hard because in order to do this, we have to open our minds up. And it's called critical thinking. And one of the things I think we battle as a country is we're, I don't know that we're really great yet at teaching people to be critical thinkers. Yet we live in an internet world where not being able to think critically could be to your detriment, right? Because otherwise you're just going to keep drawing back to the same well of information. And it doesn't make it one way right or wrong. It just makes it not complete. So one of the words that uh, I've been looking up and recently studying is a little bit about the word perfect or perfection, which um, I found to mean um, – more than just that you are absolutely without flaw, it might also mean that you are just more complete, more whole. 
whole means healthy. And a lot of our interpretations, as Dr. Sherman was talking about, most of our interpretations of other people, of other groups of people, of most of our prejudice, most of our assumptions and interpretations are not whole. They're not complete. For every uh, person, uh, Muslim, uh, you talk about in this world that is going to come in and try to kill us, I can show you a, a million exceptions. There are just as many exceptions to the rule as as you can find. So be careful. Look for whole answers, complete answers. Watch your bias and watch how strongly you argue something. Um, Because many times, even though you feel you're completely right, you're going to find out you're not. There's still more you're missing. Let's open it up, broaden it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Look up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Well, we're not sure. Unidentified flying objects or UFOs and their extraterrestrial pilots have been disproved or have they? One presidential candidate has said they'll release whatever they find. Here to discuss why America's flip-flop belief in UFOs and the presidential candidate who may support further research is Professor Joseph Laycock. He's an assistant professor of religion, uh, religious studies at Texas State University. He teaches courses on world religions, religion in America, new religious movements, and the intersection of religion and pop culture. Dr. Laycock, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. We've, you know, we've been hearing a lot about um, you know, the Star Wars kind of uh, belief system as a religion and the force and Jedi practices. And then also more and more, I guess, kind of extreme religions like forecasting. I guess it's probably been commonplace historically, the the end of the world and extraterrestrials. What is going on when it comes to uh, UFOs today and and people believing in them more and more? Well, the, the piece that I wrote for the conversation was, was addressing an older piece that came out in 2006, and it said, basically, nobody believes in UFOs anymore, and that's because of the Internet, because on the Internet you have enough people talking that reason always wins in the end. And so <laughs> people who believe in UFOs, once they go online and they meet the, the rational, skeptical people, they can't deal with their arguments, and so UFOs die out. Uh, and now we know that doesn't seem to be true. Right. Um, we do polls from time to time asking how many people uh, believe in UFOs, and it's usually about uh, a quarter of the population. And lately one poll has showed that that spiked up to 45%, which is uh, significantly high. Yeah. So in religious studies, this is something we hear all the time, right? Oh, science kills, kills anything um, smacking of the supernatural or religious or, or the paranormal science always wins in the end. And what we keep finding in sociological studies of religion is that simply isn't true, right? An individual church might uh, lose some of its clout, but something else will come up and, and take its place, even if that's something like uh, saying you're a Jedi, right? right. Um, even if it's something that comes from, from pop culture. But it's like a, it's a new mythology. So uh, you're kind of saying it rotates, huh? That... Um 
I guess, religions, this becomes a replacement for people's religions as kind of a, a mythology they can believe in. That's right. And I, I should say something. I, uh, I got some nasty emails over this article from some UFO researchers, and somebody even put on Reddit, uh, Laycock thinks if you believe in UFOs, you're dumb. Mm. Uh, I, don't, I don't say that in the article. I don't think people who believe in UFOs are dumb, and I am not qualified to assess what people are actually seeing, right? That's a scientific question. I right. think culture, not, not natural phenomena. Um, so when I say mythology, I don't mean in terms of it's a myth, it's not true. I mean it's a story to live by, Yeah. right? Just, just like the book of Genesis is, amongst other things, whether you believe it's a historically true story or not, is a story about the nature of human innocence and obedience and, and all these other sort of important questions. So in that sense, um, you know, the idea of UFOs are kind of a story to live by, right? What is our place uh, in, in the universe and so when the, the UFOs began to be seen in um, really around 1947 was sort of the considered to be the beginning of this, this phenomenon, it was tied up with the Cold War, with people worried about nuclear weapons mm. and the end of the world. And there were UFO religions. People began saying, you know, the, the UFOs have come to help save us from ourselves. They've come to prevent nuclear war. And certain people said, I can talk to them telepathically or they visited me in my home. And they actually began really fully organized UFO religions by the 1950s. Isn't that interesting? And you, it, it's also funny that the feedback you got about um, people who believe in UFOs are stupid. Well, that same claim of people that believe in religion, many would say are stupid. And that's, yeah. So it's, that's it, right. it parallels, that, right? It does parallel. And I, and I think that you know, both of these emails that I got, they began – you know, um, UFOs aren't a belief, right? There's something people either are convinced by the evidence or they're not. So the real objection was, you're in religious studies, right? You have no business talking about UFOs because that's a fundamentally separate uh, phenomenon. But uh, there's no actual definition of what constitutes religion and, and, and what doesn't. So, right. I mean, it's uh, a belief I, I set, right? Study whatever interests me. Yeah, Ex- yeah. and <laughs> yeah, well, and exactly because who would have ever thought that a Star Wars uh, story would have eventually become a belief system, and you know, or even a a, a mythological have a mythological faith following. So, talk about it. Talk about the who's the presidential candidate, by the way, that want that would release the UFO information. Well, it's, it's no secret, right? Hillary Clinton went on the, the Jimmy Kimmel show and said, you know, if I am elected, I'm going to find out what's going on at, at Area 51, and I'm going to uh, disclose. Uh, and, you know, some people that uh, the Clintons have been tied to are kind of interested in um, lobbying for the government to reveal whatever it knows uh, about UFOs, assuming it does know anything. Um, so what's interesting to me is that... Uh, in the past, political candidates who have talked about UFOs, even very minor things like uh, the Phoenix Lights incident, some strange lights were seen, and a yeah. candidate said, we should put together a committee and find out what those lights were. I don't think that's unreasonable. Right. Um, but, but usually in American politics, or at least in the past, if you did that, uh, your opponent might you know, show up with tinfoil hats <laughs> on their head and really take you to task, right? Really try to portray you as, as crazy. Uh, and with Clinton, for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Um, so that means that our conversation about these things has, has shifted. And maybe you don't sound crazy if you talk about uh, finding out what's going on in Area 51 or, or, or things like this. So that's, that's politically significant. I think that's interesting. That, that is. What, what else are you learning? Like when you see it as a, as a, 
it's because it's a cultural phenomenon. And as you're saying, as you're explaining, since the 40s on, it, it started kind of as a fear movement, um, aliens coming to invade, Cold War kind of, you know, terror behind it. What and then now where we could and then, you know, weird, you're just weird if you think of UFOs. You're an idiot if you believe in UFOs to today where a presidential candidate's talking about it. What What's happening to the rest of the population? Are we is – is it the internet that's starting to further this mythology or where's that coming from? I think the internet definitely plays a factor. I don't think that the internet leads to people uh, ceasing to believe in paranormal phenomena at all. I think, you know, anyone now can – go on YouTube and, and look at all kinds of videos of allegedly paranormal phenomena and decide what they think is, is happening. I think it's a huge platform for disseminating um, things like UFO sightings and, and so forth. Um, so, uh, so I think the Internet is definitely fueling sort of what's sometimes called re-enchantment, right, in the sociology of religion, a renewal uh, of, of paranormal uh, ideas. The other thing that's interesting is that... Um, you know, when people claim science is killing religion, one thing that seems to be happening is individual churches are, don't have the same kind of influence um, that they did in the past. We have data showing uh, church attendance at sort of the major mainline Protestant churches is down, and that seems to coincide with more people believing in uh, um, so-called supernatural or paranormal phenomena, partly because the churches were condemning this sort of thing. Right? Mm-hmm. The churches were saying... Don't go ghost hunting, right? Don't uh, don't read books about ESP. This is superstition. This is not what we should be doing. Um, so ironically, if science has weakened the institutional churches, it's kind of freed people to explore these things without anyone kind of looking over their shoulder. Yeah. Do Is there an inherent kind of human need to to believe in something bigger than us? I think that there is, and this is a question in um, in religious studies. Um, Mircea Eliade was sort of a founder of religious studies in the 1960s, and he coined the term homo religiosus. Right? He, he really believed that human beings have this uh, driving driving goal to kind of impose order or meaning on on the universe, uh, and so science is very good at answering um, kind of why questions, but but can't answer sort of um, it, it can't sort of organize the world, can't tell us our, our place in the universe. So that has to come from something else. Uh, and for religious people, it can come from their religious tradition. And for people who are kind of spiritual but not religious or are just sort of seekers, that can come from a wide variety of, of sources. And I think um, the possibility of life on other planets or UFOs can be one of those sources. That's fascinating. And as you as you think about the mythology the ufology, I think they call it, um, does it break also into camps, you know, like other religious movements or other, you know, mythology? Does it break into different types of ufologists? Absolutely. So, you know, when you had the first reports of UFOs in the 40s and 50s, the assumption, uh, including from people like the U.S. Air Force, was these are physical metal crafts and they could be from another planet, although I think the Air Force was more concerned that they could be Soviet, right? That yeah. could be some kind of secret Soviet uh, uh, plane. And uh, after a while, um, some people in the UFO field, like um, John Keel, who was featured in the movie The Mothman Prophecies, and Jacques Vallée, 
that uh, I think what people are seeing is real, but I don't think it is a a mechanical craft that came through another, you know, from another planet. I think that these are kind of more spiritual entities, right? That they kind of exist in another sort of parallel dimension and they Mm. can somehow become physical and then, and then disappear. Uh, And so John Keel, who began as a UFO researcher by the end of his life said, I'm a demonologist. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out that UFOs and religion may not be two separate phenomenon after all. What we call UFOs today may have been angels or apparitions of the Virgin Mary or, or demons in, in the past. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting because that, that means it could mean something very different to study UFOs if, mm-hmm. if you're thinking of them as, as supernatural entities as opposed to mechanical craft. It's so interesting, too, because everyone's just trying to make meaning, right? They're trying to make meaning for their life and and for these experiences that some have had. They're trying to make it fit some knowledge base that they may not have, you know, a, a nail to hang it on. That's right. In a weird way, you know, what we what we do on religi- in religious studies is not so different from what the, some of these ufologists are doing. So... If you watch shows like Ancient Aliens and they are looking at these ancient cultures around the world and they're trying to show that basically everything impressive that humans have ever made has been uh, produced by alien visitors. Um, But they're looking for patterns, right? They're looking across cultures and they're trying to find some kind of theory that unites everything. And in a way, that's kind of what religious studies is, right? We sort of assume that there's this thing out there called religion, that probably every culture has it. Uh, and then we go looking for it, and we make claims about what we found, and then and then we fight each other about it. We say, "No, your theory is wrong. It's it's not like that. It's it's more like this." So, right. in a weird way, we are kind of cousins to the ufologists trying to make sense of the world. And I, I like that. I mean, I like too that you can put it in the same category as you know, in, in mythology, and trying to trying to forge uh, some, I guess, pattern that we can live by. We'll we'll take a break. We're speaking with Doctor Joseph Laycock, all about. Uh, ufology and how it might be becoming a, a new mythology or a new or a uh, or a new religion even in some ways of uh, stating that we'll take a break come back continue the discussion this is the matt townsend show we'll be back to the Matt Townsend Show. Why are people starting to believe in UFOs again? That's the topic of the conversation. Dr. Joseph Laycock joins us. He is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University, where he teaches courses on world religion, new religious movements, and the intersection of religion and pop culture. Dr. Joseph Laycock also wrote an article that we've been citing and talking about in theconversation.com Um called uh, why are people starting to believe in ufos again dr laycock welcome back to the show and thank you for being with us yeah it's great to be here interesting subject um because you are uh, a religious studies professor but what you're telling us is that the kind of the the ufo phenomenon and people believing in extraterrestrials and and chasing the ufo um stories and i guess mythology it, it is it is 
paralleling kind of the creation of of religion. And I looked up uh, UFO religion on Wikipedia. There are many religions that are already kind of cited as as being UFO religions. One that many may not necessarily think about as that is Scientology. That's right. Yeah, Scientology is um, you know a, a pretty controversial um, religion and. Um, very secretive, and of course, because you're secretive, people can kind of say whatever they they, they want about it. But right. the founder was uh, a science fiction writer, right? L. Ron Hubbard wrote uh, science fiction, wrote uh, kind of space opera sort of stories long before he founded uh, the, the Church of Scientology. Uh, and so, people like uh, there's a book uh, by an author named uh, Hugh Urban in religious studies who have, have looked at these connections. Um, but um, supposedly at the, the higher levels of Scientology, some of these uh, uh, stories by L. Ron Hubbard are, are kind of taken uh, more literally. So when you see people online talking about uh, an alien named Lord Zenu in kind of um, Scientology literature, this is uh, supposedly from one of L. Ron Hubbard's stories that you may or may not sort of learn about in the upper echelons of the, of the Scientology movement. Uh, but all throughout the 1950s, right, people were sort of trying to make sense of uh, uh, religion and UFOs. So alongside Scientology, there were groups like um, uh, the Aetherius Society and the Unarian Soci- Academy of Science. I mean, these were all groups that said... Uh, the UFOs are coming, they're going to change the world for the better, hmm. uh, and kind of rallied around these people who said that they were the ones who could could talk to our space brothers and could kind of communicate with them. So they became, in a way, sort of UFO prophets. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that some of the kind of hardcore UFO researchers uh, are very embarrassed by these groups. Right. right? And say, Which well, is why you got the pushback. That's right, and, and you are sort of these New Agers creating a, a, a distraction. But for someone like me who studies culture, those groups are pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, and and, and, I, and you don't want to just say, oh, they're just crazy. But that that is, I guess, part of the problem. What I like about what you're telling us, though, is it, whether it's um, UFOs or just some other trend that is going on in pop culture – People can replace the the situation that's going on in their life with uh, with mythology or with religion and use it as their kind of guiding source of light. I mean, don't we see that with some really popular speakers that are kind of new age speakers that have a more of a cult following? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, you know, and this is this is a really fun conversation that I have with my students about what actually constitutes. Uh, a, a religion and what's just sort of a cult of, of celebrity. Uh, so in a, my course on religion and film, we look a little bit at uh, Jediism, like mm-hmm. people who say their religion is, is Jedi. And it seems that most of these people do not literally believe that they can, you know, do any of the Jedi powers from the movies, and they understand that it's, it's just a movie, uh, but they claim, you know, this is really serious. I really think that uh, Jedi ought to exist, even even if they don't. And there's been some interesting legal cases where they've said, uh, you know, I got thrown out of a store for shopping in my Jedi robes, and that's that's religious discrimination. So right. it's fun to talk with my students about should we should we have a religious freedom for the Jedi's or or not? Well, isn't there a, there was a religion somewhere in Great Britain? I think um, where they wear colanders on their heads. Oh, Pastafarians. Yeah, that's the Pastafarians, yeah. right, which of course began, the Pastafarians began as a protest of uh, teaching intelligent design in yeah. science class. 
Okay. And, and so it began as a joke, uh, but now it seems to be quite serious, right? So um, there's and, also this element of, of play with creating new religious movements that I think people are kind of a, a surprise that this can be something playful because we think of religion as being something uh, very, very serious all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's that's it. And so as a, as a religious scholar, what does the purpose of religion, what does it serve? What what is the purpose of religion versus you know playing to get your and trying to get attention so that your cause can be picked up versus uh, you know people that just want to wear an outfit to a store? Right. Well, um, you know, religion is is much older than the American Constitution. Right. It's only because of the American Constitution that there's any value in sort of claiming. Um, that what you're doing is is a religion, right? Before that, there was there was kind of no system to be gained uh, as as it were. So we're talking about what is the purpose of religion. That's a much bigger, much older question. I think um, in in that case, that probably what we call religion is part of something much broader, where human beings kind of to understand the world, kind of make order together. You know, I think that societies form um, religions or something that functions like a religion. Um, basically through the same mechanisms through which they construct languages, right? We have to be able to talk to each other, yeah. and we have to kind of be on the same page about uh, about reality, right? Whether yeah. that's we all agree that there's a God and we should try to obey God's law, or, um, you know, we have some sense of, of, of stories that, that we ought to, to live by. Um, so I, I think that we are hardwired for religion or something that closely resembles religion. Yeah, and I guess, too, that... Then I want to associate with like-minded people so that my life and world seem a little more predictable. We can we can build strength together. Um, it's powerful. And the neat thing, I think, with technology is you can further your message and your communication and share it more with people and create a community online or in other ways through technology. Well, that's right. You know, people often forget that the Protestant Reformation probably wouldn't have gotten very far if it weren't for the invention of the printing press. Right. Right. And so the the Internet kind of does for new religions today what uh, the printing press did for Martin Luther. No matter how strange your ideas seem at the time, uh, you can you can reach a much bigger audience. What do we do um, as we as we wrap this up? What as a dad, what do you suggest I teach my kids when it comes to helping them sort through all of these alternative options, some of which are just movements, and some of them are actually turning into religions, and some of them are just an exploration of science. How do I help them sort through all of these and, and find a healthy you know, balance? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. I don't want to give you the wrong advice. <laughs> I will I come after there. you. I know where you live, Joseph. That's that's right. Well, one thing that I, I deal with a lot, I used to be a high school teacher, and, and teaching about religion, something I hear from parents all the time is, you can't teach my kids about this stuff or they'll convert to some other religion. Mm. Uh, and I have to say, I've never once seen that happen. Yeah. I've never once had a student who we, we do Islam 101 or Buddhism 101, and they say, that's it, I'm, I'm changing my religion. So I actually think that kind of there's no harm in knowing about um, how other people see the world, and probably the more kind of religions and cultures and historical periods uh, people people learn about, the more they get kind of a big picture and a more balanced perspective on uh, on what actually is is going on here. So I think that 
um, uh, variety in all things can can help to cultivate wisdom. I agree, and 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 you can too share them your view and kind of let let the let their minds be open to others. Um, I think there's a kids are a lot smarter than we maybe give them credit for. And and by the way, our examples and the peace that we bring from our our religious beliefs, uh, you know, sell as well. So. Dr. Joseph Laycock, thank you so much for being with us and for your great insight on this. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you. Good having you. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, When we come back, we're going to have to finish discussing batarangs. You're not going to want to miss this. Terry's going to enlighten us on uh, how Superman created the batarang. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about batarangs, and then we got sidetracked on Superman cakes. Um, here's the deal. Terry, I need your, your special uh, mind Yes, um, on it, It's this. an ability. It's a skill. Yeah. We can so, characterize yeah. it no, that no, way if you'd like. Yeah. Dozens would say that. And so... Um, dozens? Dozens worldwide. <laughs> okay. So Batman yes. had a little boomerang thing. Mm-hmm. Called the boomerang thing. See, Batman doesn't use guns. He doesn't right. kill people. Well, now in the movies, apparently he does. But the whole like run of the comics, his parents were killed. Right. He refuses to kill. He won't kill. Which is very helpful because if you don't take out your enemies, then they go to prison and break out and you get more comic books. Right. Right. So that's kind of the idea there. So he doesn't kill. So he needed something else to be able to use as a weapon. He used a battering. There you go. Wow. Now, the Batarang is a – I heard that Superman and Batman sat down having popcorn, watching a movie. All right. And, Sounds like a YouTube video. I've seen. And Batman was talking about how he's he kind of gets beat up a bit because mm. he doesn't have a gun. Right. And Superman said, well, why don't you make a boomerang and that will stop people. And Batman said, OK. Hmm. And Superman said, let me make it for you. Where did you hear this? It was in one of the Marvel comics. It wasn't. But go ahead. This isn't how any of this happened. But go ahead. Is it true that Superman is the first one to forge out of titanium? It was tungsten, but no. Out of tungsten. It wasn't tungsten. That he he personally mined out of tungsten ore out of a mountain in China. Vibranium. Those are all comic book metals, but go ahead. Is it true that Superman invented it? No. And then Batman stole it? No. Not true. Okay. Well, this is getting a big story today because now all of the Comic-Con kids go buy Batarangs. Yeah, people make these. Little boomer, little stars. They're that, sharp on the ends. Yeah. They're, they're, bas- they're th- like throwing they're stars, stars, but in the form of a bat. And now, you buy them at Comic-Con in, in uh, San Diego or wherever they yeah, have these events. You're spending a lot of money on tungsten batterings, and then you can't get them through TSA. TSA. And TSA says, no more. Don't bring any more batterings. You can bring lassos of truth. <laughs> you can bring yeah. uh, spidey gloves. Yeah, web shooters. You can do that. No problem. You can bring... By the way, Robin can bring his entire belt. 
Yeah, Batman no... can't bring his belt because he's nonviolent, except he has a battering, batarang with a really sharp with sharp edges. Yeah, you're telling me he's he's not violent, but the batarang looks seriously violent. Oh, oh so violent that TSA does not allow. He'll beat Batman's... you up. He'll beat you up, but he won't kill you. Okay. He, he has a line. He has a personal code. Until now, then Bat, Matt Aff, or uh, Ben Affleck went in and ruined it. So here's the deal. Answer me this. We've yeah. only got a few minutes. A minute. True. Um, why does Batman have all of the cool stuff on his belt? Because he has no powers. Why does Robin only have chapstick on his belt? Because Robin is very odd. <laughs> we'll put it that way. He's a strange little guy. That seems kind of rude. Yeah. I was going to say beauty products, but because yeah, he, he seems more, more to care about like his hairdo. When well, I read about him, but now it's different because they're under like the fourth Robin, yeah, and they just they're a little crazy because he came from the League of Shadows. He's kind of a ninja type thing, so it's kind of well. We appreciate your insight, Terry. No, you don't. And your little walk down Nerd Road. Nerd Road. So if you're going to the airport, please check your bat belt. And uh, as you get out of your Batmobile, it's called, it's called the utility belt. It's not a bat belt. If you happen to be riding the Bat Cycle, there you go, or the Batapod. That was one of the cars. They kind of called it the Bat Pod. Make sure you leave your uh, Batarang in your Bat Pod. We'll take a break. One more hour coming up. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with... um, with likes or dislikes, one of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If we don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that 
you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get it, get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long term, to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn if we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that hey, this this does this does well for for you. They they can see that it it offers you an opportunity, and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else. You might want to take it, folks. I mean, I know we all kind of fall in, into our entrenched stubbornness at times, but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Now, the breakup between Great Britain and the EU, it's it's like a it's like a it's a bunch of friends that you lined up years ago. And now they just don't get along. They just don't get along. So what are you supposed to do? And who do you go with, right? Do I go with my best friend, Great Britain? But I've really come to love and appreciate the other partners. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Well, the EU gives you financial benefits. So is your friend more important than financial benefits? No, because I feel like I can use both of them equally. How many times on the show have we talked about collaboration and the need to work together, the need to – I mean we live in a global economy. We live in a global marketplace and now Great Britain's going to kind of go it alone. But they still need markets, right? They still need places to put their their goods. They still need trade. And I guess they're assuming or believing that they'll just be able to pick that up. So it may not be an all-or-nothing kind of mentality. It, it's this is a it's an interesting concern about isolationism. In fact, it reminds me of um, this story that I read. Oh, listen to this poor guy: a Colombian sailor found a live 
after two months adrift in the Pacific. A sailor has been rescued after spending two harrowing months lost at sea, witnessing the deaths of his three shipmates and forced to eat seagulls for survival. Yee! 29-year-old Colombian sailor was picked up some 3,500 miles from home, far out in a desolate stretch of the Pacific Ocean. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, he arrived on dry land in Honolulu on Wednesday. Can you imagine finally seeing ground? He landed on, in Honolulu, saying the sailor was in good condition and happy to have survived. The sailor told officials his group of four set off from Colombia more than two months ago when the engine of their 23-foot skiff Failed, they found themselves adrift, and they were forced to eat fish and seagulls to stay alive. He told the Coast Guard the bodies of his compatriots were not on board anymore, the tiny vessel, when it was found, but the sole survivor was able to produce their passports. So they had to be let go, probably. He was also found with a soccer ball, wasn't he? No, that's 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 another show. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. this isn't... This is a different... This is a real-life story. This is not... Isn't that other one a real-life story, too? No. Really? No, that's a movie. That's a movie. I thought it was a documentary. No, Castaway? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie. It, it, was, it didn't happen. But this yeah. is the music. I appreciate how you played that music behind this, but this, this uh, was a real story of a guy that had to... I mean, I guess eventually these guys died, and then you just throw them into the ocean. That's what you got to do. You can't have them can't have them just dead there next to you. Can you imagine? Sometimes that's how I feel. Alone on an island or just alone in a skiff. With a dead body next to you? With a dead body named Ben sleeping on the board. <sighs> that's what I'm afraid of for the UK. Be careful. Be careful going off on your own. Sometimes you might just be adrift for two months. And have to eat seagulls. Ugh. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you see the good in the world. The guy survived. That's the good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You got you to gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake, you got to lose the sugary soda. The, the, the cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar, totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now, we tell our kids all of these things, and yet uh, isn't it hard? Um, we, we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, they see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you. And they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent. Because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we, we probably need to master ourselves. And find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. 
I find that about three times a year I quit soda for about a month. And then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda and I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why, why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah. What else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even – you got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. It drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are, right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You you also have to find what you are. And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, Right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works. And when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet – then I want to be here to, to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be shortchanged. And shortchanged simply because I like sugar. I, again, I don't think, I don't think your God is up there sitting like, I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something. And it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough or you're not eating enough vegetables or you're not being the person you need to be. And you can just, I guess, go medicate it by you know escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do – why you want to get healthier. 
It's, if it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body, get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are and see what it's telling you. It's, it's, it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is... Becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just – you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever felt like, uh, you know, the need to check your phone while talking to somebody, or have you ever made a mistake because you were on your phone? Maybe missed a turn off when you shouldn't have been driving and talking? ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, can cause many problems, among them trouble paying attention or, or staying still. The disorder is so debilitating that 6% of American children are treated with medication to reduce the symptoms. Recently, though, behavioral scientist Dr. Kushlev found that people not suffering from ADHD may unknowingly be giving themselves the symptoms of ADHD through smartphone notifications. Here to talk about his research is Kosta Kushlev. Dr. Kosta Kushlev is a professor and a research faculty member at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Kushlev. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Talk to us about your research. Um, you got into the idea that maybe these phones are, are starting to create the symptoms of, of ADHD, and you, you, I guess you found some correlation there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in fact, there is quite a lot of uh, sort of research out there already uh, kind of documenting a correlational relationships. So what we really wanted to do is to uh, look at the relationship a little bit more causally, Uh, And so to do that, uh, what we did was to try to manipulate uh, how disrupted people felt by uh, smartphone notifications uh, on a daily basis. Mm. And so um, we uh, had a group of over 200 students or so participate in a two-week study. And during one week, they were instructed to keep their phones on uh, silent and to try to kind of keep them um, out of sight whenever possible so uh, that the notification disruptions are um, reduced, and during the other week, they were asked to keep their phone alerts on. And so this way, uh, we were able to compare how the same people felt, uh, how uh, uh, inattentive and hyperactive they felt during each of those weeks while keeping everything else uh, constant. Huh. What'd you find out? Yeah, and so uh, we found that 
uh, as we predicted, when people had their uh, alerts on uh, and were more frequently interrupted by notifications, they reported higher symptoms of inattentiveness and hyperactivity uh, than when they had their phone on silent. Now, um, of course, um, you know, these are, as you mentioned, the symptoms uh, that are associated with ADHD. And in fact, we use the same criteria uh, used to diagnose ADHD. But it's important to kind of emphasize that this does not mean that phones or smartphone notifications can cause ADHD. Uh, ADHD, of course, is a neurodevelopmental disorder with complex etiology, so it cannot be reduced to just our smartphones. Uh, but what the findings do suggest is that even for those of us not suffering from ADHD, our phones might be making us just a little bit more inattentive and hyperactive, and thus have kind of downstream consequences for uh, a lot of other outcomes, such as productivity and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I there's nothing that drives me more crazy than listening to my uh, what are the how old thirteen uh, year old cell phone go off because he has notifications <laughs> and it goes off all day long, nonstop because he's in these group chats and every time. So I sit there and I think with this research, it doesn't cause ADHD, but it causes symptoms of ADHD. And That's is right. it possible that we're going to end up diagnosing more kids with ADHD because they seem to carry the symptoms? Um, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely possible. And, and uh, again, with a lot of disorders, uh, you know, people have certain predispositions to certain disorders, but depending on the environment, these predispositions can be, um, you know, can actually realize or not. And so, um, you know, considering how many uh, notifications, especially uh, young people get on their phones, uh, according to some uh, estimates, uh, it runs in the hundreds uh, per day. So pretty much uh, one every minute uh, or so. So uh, it is quite uh, possible that, uh, you know, we're really kind of uh, growing up or uh, our children are growing up in an environment that is constantly demanding our attention to be switched from one thing to, to another. That's making it very difficult to, for us to focus on one thing and very easy for us to become very hyperactive. So if we... Do you sense that if we just turned the notifications off, uh, mm-hmm. those symptoms would go away? Well, um, or is it just having the course. phone and you know because the, the child will still see it light up, maybe or you know, may, that's right. Yeah. So in our so in our research, uh, we uh, asked our participants two things. So one thing was to switch the phone on silent, and the second thing was to kind of try to keep it out of sight and out of reach. So, uh, of course, you know, notifications can be uh, sort of alerted in many different ways. It could be sound, but it could, uh, as you mentioned, be uh, a visual uh, thing. So you just see the phone. You know, it doesn't have to uh, ring uh, if you see it pop up uh, on the table. Uh, So I think the key is to, you know, try at least during certain activities that we value and that require attention, such as, you know, talking with other people in person or studying or working uh, to try to, you know, switch off our phone or switch it off on silent uh, and uh, put it away for, you know, uh, even if it's for half an hour or an hour or something like that, uh, you know, this could really potentially help us uh, focus. Now, Mm. of course, there is the other sort of side of this, which is that, you know, if you're used to constantly seeing your notifications and you know that you're getting notifications all the time, uh, then it's possible that 
putting your phone away might actually at first feel really unnatural and actually make you think of the phone uh, more. Uh, and so when we were kind of starting this research, we weren't completely sure that we'll find what we found because we thought, well, maybe people would actually, you know, drive themselves crazy trying to keep their phone on silent and would become more uh, inattentive and hyperactive. But that's not what we found. So uh, I think there is a little hope there that we could uh, reduce these symptoms by regulating our uh, phone use and how we receive notifications. Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, this is this this is interesting because long term we don't know really at all long term the impact of this, do we? Um, no, we have no idea. And I mean, this was one of the first um, pieces of research where we uh, again tried to manipulate uh, how people get notifications to see what effect it has on you know population of regular people. Uh, but again, this was a two week study. Uh, and, uh, you know, we found a lot of downstream consequences uh, from this inattentiveness and hyperactivity kind of consistent with past research on a variety of other important outcomes, such as, uh, again, productivity, how socially connected people felt to other people, which is interesting because phones are often used to connect us with others. Mm-hmm. But yet we found that uh, to the extent that phones made people more inattentive, they also made them feel less socially connected. Uh, people also kind of felt uh, a lower sense of environmental mastery, so kind of uh, things are a little bit out of control and that sort of thing. Uh, um, and so I think if we, you know, ran the study for a year or something like this, we might uh, be able to actually isolate these uh, downstream con- consequences more clearly as well. But it was only two weeks. Yeah, at this yeah. Stage. Did, did you see a difference between the, um, like a teenager and an adult? So uh, we used a convenient sample, uh, like most of psychology, uh, and so we relied on our, um, you know, students, mostly psychology students, uh, and so uh, those were, um, the the age range was about 19 to 22, I think, so a pretty narrow age range, Um, and so we can't really answer the question whether there's a difference between, uh, you know, teenagers and adults and that sort of thing. Uh, there's certainly quite a lot of data uh, out there from Pew Research Center and so forth that does suggest that people, uh, younger people use their phones more than adults. Uh, and so from that perspective, it's possible that the effects would be uh, stronger for, uh, for younger people. Uh, but we could not answer that question definitively in our research. Mm. Wow. So what you found is concentration, I guess, tends to go down um, Productivity goes down, social connectedness goes down, uh, environmental mastery, I guess, a sense that you're kind of in control of your world. These all seem to parallel in a way. These seem to be stressors as well. So if this is going on and all of your your productivity, your social connectedness, your you know self-environmental mastery, is, if they're all dropping, it seems like anxiousness would be going up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've, we've run some other research, which wasn't with smartphone notifications, but with email notifications. And that was with a sample of um, professionals and older adults. Uh, and in that case, we asked people to uh, either, you know, check their email throughout the day, as they normally do, or to try to limit their 
uh, email checking only to three times a day, which you know most people managed to reduce to about five. Uh, so it wasn't even three uh, in the end. But uh, but we found that the, uh, when people check their email less frequently throughout the day, they experienced uh, less stress. And so uh, I think uh, what you're saying goes uh, pretty well with these findings that all these notifications might be causing us to kind of feel, um, you know, scattered, anxious, feeling that things can kind of get out of control and, and ultimately uh, result in more uh, stress. Yeah. Oh, boy. What are we creating, <laughs> Costa? This is getting this is going to get crazy. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, I'd love to have you give us some ideas, some solutions. You've already given us some just by checking emails, uh, you know, less frequently. Uh, what else can we do to help our kids and really ourselves not be taken in by the by the technology to the point that we start manifesting signs of ADHD and or manifesting um, anxiety, stress, other things that will come from that inattentiveness? We'll take a break. Helping you live with the technology you've got, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, is technology starting to impact your focus, your attention? Well, according to our guest, Costa Kushlev, a professor at the uh, a research faculty member at the University of Virginia, he says yes. Uh, you can also find out more from uh, Costa at, at Happy Scholar. That's his Twitter handle, at Happy Scholar. And today he's just walking us through the latest and greatest of his research where we learned that uh, when we're on technology, there's a causal effect of being on technology, not just on the technology, but when we have notifications going off on our cell phone, it disrupts us and it it starts to create um, the symptoms of ADHD, uh, inattentiveness, decreased productivity, decreased social connectivity, uh, decreased environmental mastery where you kind of feel like things are out of control around you um, and focus. And so he's teaching us today about the research and, and kind of its imp- it's it's uh, the impact it's having on us. Dr. Kost, uh, Costa Kushleff, thank you so much again for being with us. Uh, thank you. What else um, – what else do we need to know? I mean, I'm assuming this is kind of uh, the beginning of a lot of research. I mean, I mean, I know they've been doing some already, but of the impact of these technologies, just something as simple as Apple putting on a notification, and then I, boy, Costa, I created something. Uh, um, I found out that you can also make it so your flash on your camera flashes when your phone rings. So now, all right. I'm totally jumping all over the place the minute my notifications are on. What, uh, what, what do you sense is going to happen with the future of all of this research? And do you have any, um, you know, what, what could we probably anticipate seeing more of? Right. Uh, yeah, and you're right. There is already quite a lot of uh, research going on in this area. Um, and there has been quite a lot of research for a while now for uh, on notifications, uh, but uh, what has uh, changed since the advent of the smartphone 
is that now these notifications are with us absolutely everywhere. Uh, you know, before, uh, you know, maybe your email interrupted you while you're doing something else at work. Uh, but now your phone interrupts you with work emails while you're spending time with your kids or trying to, you know, enjoy a meal and so forth. So we're disrupting all these other essential activities that are important for our happiness and uh, well-being. So I think a lot of my, uh, well, a lot of my research has been focusing on this topic with, um, uh, you know, ultimately looking at well-being and happiness and how this technology can uh, both help us achieve greater happiness, but also some of the pitfalls on the way. Because it's really important to recognize here that uh, smartphones are so popular because they are incredibly useful. Uh, and I certainly use my phone a lot. And we're talking right now because you could, you know, call me in Bulgaria uh, while right. I'm on vacation on my cell phone. So, uh, so they're incredibly useful. Um, and so, you know, you can find uh, easy directions in a neighborhood and so forth. But uh, the question is, what are some of the pitfalls? What is, what is getting lost with these, uh, these devices? And then to start thinking about how we can or what we can do in order to reduce this cost and really harness uh, the benefits. Mm -hmm. Now, I think people are already starting to uh, realize uh, they, you know, not necessarily through research, but through their own observations that these devices are having negative effects on their attention and maybe making them more hyperactive and so forth or, or stressed. And so, you know, I've heard of people kind of trying, uh, you know, their own self-interventions where they have a one day a week where they, they get um, a cell phone detox day where they just don't switch off their phone. You know, maybe it's a Saturday or a Sunday and they just do not use it at all. Um, you know, just kind of recharge mm. uh, and, and kind of pay attention to the environment. Uh, and during the rest of the week, you know, they need their phone. So, um, you know, we've come to rely on it so much. So, uh, you know, I think it's impractical to expect that we would just throw our phones away uh, right. and throw the, the baby with a bathwater. Um, but I think uh, what I really like to see is also um, kind of these uh, big companies that produce our phones to start thinking about ways in which, um, you know, the, 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 the smartphones can become uh, sort of psychologically smart. In other words, they can start knowing us better and knowing our psychological needs or our psychological goals at a, at a particular moment of time during the day. So, for example, uh, with the existing technology, you can always have, uh, you can already have uh, the phone know that, for example, at 5 o'clock, um, you know, you pick up your son from um, from school, so the phone knows that from 5 to 8 o'clock, um, no work notifications should be, uh, you know, yeah, that's uh, alerted. Uh, you know, and you can still get your notifications from, you know, let's say your wife or whatever. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so, I mean, I think it's, it's really striking that we spend more time with our smartphones than we spend with anybody, right? Like right. They, you know, they're our best friends, uh, if you will. So, so they should really know us better. I mean, maybe, you know, the next time you get your new smartphone, um, you know, the, the phone asks you a few questions about you so that, um, you know, you can kind of learn about your daily routine and so forth. And based on that, um, to, to sort of, you know, help you regulate these notifications, because it's very difficult for us to, um, you know, to sort of self-regulate, uh, you know, and, and just switch our phones on silent all the time. Right. Well, you, I mean, how great if you could, 
you know, you can already do it where you could put your, you know, your family circle, your 10 most important people in your life could be graded or rated one way. Your professional most important people could be another way. And then, I mean, there's, there's, there's already abilities where I can turn off my phone from getting any messages, you know, or any notifications from 10 at night to 6 in the morning. But how powerful if you're, like you're saying, your phone could detect the relationship the time of day, and then prioritize your stuff so you're only being called, if anything, by your 10 most important people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, this is really important to emphasize here that, you know, we, we already use the sort of existing uh, functionality of the phone uh, in our research. So we ask people to switch their phone on silent. But again, I just don't think that that's, right. you, know, you know, this was no. useful for our research, but it's not really a practicable you know, recommendation for everybody, right? Like yep. people want to get notifications. Well, uh, and, and it goes, so, but it goes to your point that the companies that are making these phones would better serve uh, their users if they would, you know, take a psychological approach too, right? And and start innovating based on our deeper needs for happiness. Exactly. Yeah, and we already, you know, we. I mean, many of the things are very simple, right? It's just like uh, when we're spending time with others, with close others, um, you know, we need our attention. That's important. So, you know, um, that has been demonstrated by science, but it's also something very common sense. So, uh, I think you know, uh, we can start at a very basic level, but you know, uh, we could uh, work from there. You know, because in in a hundred years, we'll have uh, perhaps even more integrated uh, devices. Who knows where we'll carry them and so forth. So we really need to start thinking about how we can integrate these devices so that they're less disruptive to our other activities. Yeah. So we don't, you know, because if you think about it too, like the, the people that are, uh, you know, today's teenagers, for example, they've never really lived in a world w- with no notifications, right? So right. In, a, in a sense, now is the time for those of us who still remember that there's something else than constant notifications to kind of think about how we can balance uh, these these uh, different demands. Talk about, um, I know you've done a lot of research on the happiness factor and uh, the impact technology might be having on that, and, and you gave us a little taste of it. What are some other ways that technology may be hindering our happiness? Uh, well, so uh, one of the some, some of the other research that I've done as part of my uh, dissertation research was kind of looking at, uh, for example, how people use their phones uh, to find directions. And so we actually found uh, that there were a sort of positive effects, uh, net effect on happiness. So you know when you you put people under pressure, uh, tell them to find a building in 30 minutes, and they can use their phones to find the directions, you know, they actually feel happier at the end because it's easier to find it and they find it faster and so forth. You know, it's less frustrating, I guess. But at the same time, we find that they miss on these social opportunities to uh, connect with um, with other people around them. So when people couldn't rely on their phones, they had to... Um, they had to speak to other people and ask them, hey, do you know where this building mm-hmm. is? And so, you know, and when you ask people for directions, you you know, uh, it's surprisingly how helpful people want to be. And so, you know, so it's a really nice way to kind of remind yourself, oh, people are helpful, people are nice. Um, and so, you know, so that could kind of 
um, without us realizing, we might be foregoing these opportunities to kind of foster the sense of connectedness, this sense of community, sense of trust in others, uh, in our communities and so forth, because we rely so much on these very, very uh, useful devices. That's, that's it's interesting. Yeah, the loss of community simply because we're no longer needing each other. I can just ask Siri. Um, exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. What about uh, what would you? What advice do you give to parents? And how how much um, you know control, leadership, guidance should we take on um, when it comes to these cell phones and our kids? Should we? And what are some? What's just some general advice you give? Um, I don't know what advice to give them. To be honest, uh, it's very difficult because um, you know, on the one hand. You know, trying to control, uh, you know, one kid's uh, cell phone use when, you know, all the other friends or whatever can use their phone all the time could actually, you know, backfire. So, um, so for me, I think it's more about, you know, thinking about at a broader level, how do we kind of create the uh, social norms uh, and uh, social awareness, I guess, uh, through perhaps programs and things like this for teenagers themselves to realize that, um, you know, being on your phone or being constantly, um, you know, communicating through a cell phone is not necessarily a good thing. I know there has been uh, some programs where kids have been taken on uh, to, uh, you know, again, you know, digital detox camps where, um, you know, for one week they couldn't use their phones and, you know, just a summer camp basically without phones, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's where the key is. I don't know if, um, you know, how you can actually force kids no. to use their phones once you, once you, you know, and, and I, I think, I mean, I think parents already realize the dangers uh, potentially, but, you know, there's these social pressures, like everybody else has a phone at 11 or 13 or whatever it is. So, you know, you kind of don't want to be the <laughs> best parent that yeah. doesn't uh, get your kid a cell phone. So. Well, maybe what they ought to do is just read your article in the conversation.com um, because and then go have a discussion, like talk about the fact that using your phone and having the notifications on, it's going to start to create symptoms of of ADHD. And maybe that's that's enough, you know, guidance for some. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Costa Kushlev. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was great insight and uh, needed by all of us, folks. Pay attention. There's a cost to the phone. If anything, it's not going to cause ADHD, but apparently it will cause some of the symptoms. And the symptoms are just as bad as having ADHD many times if we're not careful. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we've been talking about uh, technology and its impact on uh, on you and how it distracts you. It, it, it gives you the symptoms of ADHD. Well, yeah, but Matt, it doesn't give me ADHD. It just makes me actually act as if I have it. Well, what's the difference? It's the same thing, isn't it? If you feel like 
you don't have environmental mastery, you're a, kind of a sense that you have a hold of the things around you in your life, it's going to stress you out. And when you get stressed out, you do crazy things. For example, here's the story of a preteen that leads cops on a high-speed chase. Police outside of Houston hit speeds up to 118 miles per hour while on a 40-mile chase. If you play Mario Kart every day and you're a preteen, a 12-year-old girl all of a sudden thinks, I'm just going to outrun these cops, getting up to 118 miles an hour. I, I believe the cops stopped her by throwing a green turtle shell at oh, her. Those are the worst. Um, Don't they, you hate it when they, they, they some turtle banana shell peels you? Yeah. on hand? Was she um, dropping banana peels to get the cop to yeah, that's, slide off? that's how she got 40 miles, I think. Wow. 40 miles at 118 miles an hour. And by the way, her grandmother's Chevrolet Cruze. How on earth does a Cruze get up to 180 miles an hour? I thought that it could only happen with terminal velocity of falling out of an airplane. I don't know. It's crazy. Anyway, that crazy kid uh, dodged the police on the 40-mile chase. And by the way, she had her five-year-old sister in the back seat. All this was taking place when Grandma was nine-nine. Grandma was taking a nap. If you're out there, if you're a grandparent and you're going to take a nap, go ahead. Go ahead. Just sleep with the keys. Yeah, hide your keys. Sleep with the keys, put them in your house jacket, and go to bed. Put them under your pillow. The young lady had a pretty clean drive, by the way, except for she only sideswiped two cars. Oh, nice. No one was Not bad for a first time out. Not bad for a 12-year-old. Nice. The Montgomery County attorney, uh, J.D. Lambright, said, I can't imagine this was a first-time driving experience for her. She's done this before. By the way, guess how they got her? Technology. They called OnStar. And they just shut and off OnStar the car. OnStar shut down the car. Yeah. Done. You just coast. You can't outrun. You, you can outrun a cop. Mm-hmm. But they always told me you can't outrun. The radio. The radio. That's why they call ahead. And now you really can't outrun OnStar. Satellites. <laughs> We will get you one way or another. Technology, it's impacting us and our ADHD. I see it on our team all the time. Wow. I'll I'll lose Terry for, I used to, for five minutes as he would chase down Charizard. Hmm. Well, we have a polka stop that's like right outside the building. It's within reach. Did you say polka stop? polka. Polka. Like a pokey? Mm. Ah, I love polka stops. And you just stop. Yeah. And you just do a little jig. There's some guy with a drum and a hat and an accordion. and Yeah. yeah. Is this where you need like some brats or some pizza? Pizza? Pizza. Yeah. I used to go to Duratskeller Pizza okay. and they'd have polka night. That's where I picked up the accordion. All right. Those were good days. Apparently. Fond memory. It was when I made Larry Pino's polka uh, orchestra, okay, which is a bunch of students that play accordion, and I realized I got to get out of this because he told me I was gifted in the accordion. Oh no! Yep, and I'm like, okay, you're like it's I'm sucking done. me in. <laughs> Shut her down! Away. Shut her down! Shut her down! All right, we'll take a break, folks. We'll come back one more hour of the show, and by the way, only one more hour with Ben Wasden and his wonderful 
ravenicecream.com. Only killed two. Better than the year before. This is the Matt Townsend Show.